The Lord is risen. Indeed He is. And what a joy it is to be here with you on this Sunday as we think about and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Today is a special Sunday because of the intentional focus that we have on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, in one way, though, in another way, it's actually not all that special. Because as Christians, this is something that we do every Sunday. Every time we gather together on a Sunday, on the first day of the week, we are doing so to worship God, following the example of the early church who also began meeting on the first day of the week. Originally, most of them were Jewish believers. They would have gathered at uh, the the temple right before the Sabbath began. But now... Now they gather on the first day of the week because that is the day that Christ rose from the dead. And so every Sunday when we gather together, we are speaking confidently and joyfully of our belief that Christ is risen. And yet, and yet it is a special day in some ways. It's special because history is essential to the theology of the Christian church. Christianity is not about vague ideas or spirituality. Christianity is about historical acts of a living God. That living God, that almighty God has not only created us, but he has involved himself in our lives throughout all of history, even to this day. He has done so in mighty acts of salvation for humanity. And that was especially seen in the life of Jesus Christ. He was one who had a public ministry, who did engaged in public healing and public preaching. He also experienced a very public death as he was executed on the Roman cross. But yet he also uh, displayed a public resurrection. When he came back from the dead, it was not in private. He appeared to many, many people. In fact, over 500 at one time. And those people went around telling the larger public what they saw. And all of that is not just interesting information. It is essential. It is vital for Christianity itself. Paul, in fact, says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ did not literally come out of the tomb, then what we're doing is all for nothing. It's not true, it makes no sense, and it's a waste of our time. Christianity is rooted in history. In fact, so much so that from the historical sources outside the New Testament, and from what we're told within the New Testament, we're actually pretty sure of the exact date Jesus walked out of the tomb just outside of Jerusalem. April 5th, A.D. 33. And that's the reason why it's in this time, in this springtime, that we especially set aside to remember the historic reality of Jesus Christ crucified and yet risen from the dead. He's conquered death and sin as part of God's plan to save humanity from its sin. For many, though, it's still difficult to believe. It's difficult to to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's easy to think that he was alive. It's easy to think that he died. It's the reason why uh, just a few days ago many places closed for Good Friday. It's his death. But Easter will never be a national holiday. Because this is what separates the men from the boys spiritually. It's what separates those that are kind of around Christianity and kind of like Jesus. And those who fully embrace him as a Savior and Lord. The belief that he really rose back from the dead. 
There's lots of historic evidence that we can point to for the resurrection of Christ. Many of these things you can read online or get a helpful book like Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. But for me personally, the greatest argument for the reality, the historicity of the resurrection of Christ is seen in his disciples. During his death and in the the hours and day that followed, they were weak. They were timid. They were fearful. They were hiding out, rejecting Jesus and wanting to have nothing to do with him. And yet within just a, a matter of weeks, suddenly they are setting the world on fire, preaching that this man, their friend, now their savior and their king was risen from the dead. In fact, some of you will be familiar with the events of the Watergate scandal in President Nixon's administration. One of the men that went to prison in that scandal was a man named Chuck Colson who heard the gospel and became a Christian in prison. In one of his books called Born Again, he says this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. Seems like an odd thing to say. Thankfully, he goes on, how did it prove it to me? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if that weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So what does it mean if Christ has risen from the dead? What does it mean if it's a historical reality that he died, he went into a tomb, and he came back out again? What difference should it make in our lives? That's what we want to think about this morning as we look to the end of this letter to the Hebrews. And here, uh, we're not given all the details, we're not given uh, everything that could be said about this, but we're, giving, we're given a big picture reality of what life is meant to be like because of the risen Christ. Now this passage comes at the end of this longer letter and it is a a word of exhortation that Hebrew says he is writing and he ends with a benediction, a prayer of blessing and encouragement. Here's what he says in verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen now notice how this benediction works what is he praying for what is he praying for the people to whom he is writing that god would equip them with everything good why does he pray that that they may do god's will and now how can he pray for this what what is the what is the assurance what is the confidence he has to pray for this it is the hope he has of god himself that he is the god of peace who raised up christ from the dead and committed him to himself to the good of his people with an eternal covenant a never-ending promise that's the basis for his prayers and so This morning we want to unpack this and think through how this shows us what life is like, what is like, what life is meant to be like under the shepherd of the church, under the leadership and the care and the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen back from the dead. We want to begin by seeing that because Christ is raised from the dead, our life should be lived as we remember God's peace. 
We are to remember God's peace. Notice how he begins. He says, now may the God of peace. This is the starting place. That idea, the God of peace, that's the starting place for everything in the Christian life. Everything that is believed, everything that is done, everything that is hoped for, everything that is repented of, starts with this reality that we remember the God of peace. The question is, what kind of peace is it? Is it like, you know, peace, love, happiness? Is it, you know, peace out? I mean, what, what is he talking about? Some people think as they read this that it's peace of mind, that it's a calmness or a stability in this world, that God is on the throne and everything's right in the world. But look around the world. All is not right in the world. There is not peace in this world. The world is full of corruption. It's full of moral depravity. The world is full of death and disease. There's no peace of mind in this world. In fact, just this past week, there was a massive ferry that sank in South Korea. More than just a a tragedy in of itself, it was especially difficult for that nation because it was full of hundreds of high school students on their break from school. When the ship was in distress, the parents were notified that initially that all the children were safe. The teenagers had been rescued. They were successfully evacuated from the ferry. But then as they watched the news, it became clear that report was false. They had peace of mind for a while. And then it was viciously taken away from them as they realized that no, the vast majority of these students were missing and are now even presumed dead. There's, there's no peace of mind in this world. Why? Because we've taken God's good world and we've mangled it. We've twisted it. We've distorted it from his original design of that which was good and perfect and a blessing to us into something now filled with sin. We've rebelled against God's leadership and his authority. We've decided that we don't need God to tell us right from wrong. We can determine what is right from wrong. And we've failed miserably. And now the world is corrupt because of it. The Bible calls all of this sin and says that it taints the heart of every single person in the human race. And that sin deserves God's wrath. Because he is holy and just. And he will therefore judge sin in this world even when it's seen in us. The, the height of his creation. Humanity made in his image. In fact, the Bible says that even one sin against God is deserving of his wrath forever in hell. Well, that may seem harsh to you. One sin? Just one sin is worthy of God's wrath? One sin is worthy of hell? That doesn't seem fair. But we need to think about the nature of sin. One pastor named Ray Ortland says that we should think about the man Benedict Arnold. He is infamous in this country for one thing and one thing only, being a traitor. And unless you're a history major, you probably don't know anything else about the man's life. But the truth is, Arnold has served energetically and effectively on the American side. As a general in our Continental Army, he fought bravely and won at Fort Ticonderoga. But he was passed over for promotion. He had run up some personal debts. He came under fire and criticism by his political competitors. So he decided to switch sides. He got himself assigned to the command of West Point in order to hand it over to the British. But his plot was discovered. Now, none of his life up until that point mattered one whit to this country, to its leaders, to its citizens. All the good that he had done was completely offset by one act of treason and so it is with us and god 
though created to love him, to worship him, to serve him, we turn away from him. We reject him. We reject a relationship with him. We commit cosmic treason and live contrary to the reason for which we were created. The result is that we are enemies, enemies of God, destined for hell. But what does Hebrews say here? God is a God of peace. He has worked to turn traitors like us back into loyal servants of himself. This is the kind of peace that Hebrews is talking about. The peace that comes when two warring parties, two hostile groups are now together at peace with one another. The hostilities having been ended. God is the one who has worked for this peace. He is the one that has accomplished it through the saving work of Christ who died for sinners. He took hell upon himself in our place at the cross. And it's this God-given peace that we now have when we trust him, when we turn to faith in Christ, that becomes foundational for everything else in the Christian life. If you here today don't have that peace, if you still feel at war with God, If you realize that you are not right with Him, then this morning I I implore you even now, turn to Him in faith. Trust that Jesus is the means by which you can have peace with Him. He is the Savior that will bring you forgiveness and life and allow the hostilities to end so that you will not suffer hell, but eternal life. Believe in Christ this morning. Have peace with God. And from that peace, understand that we are to follow God's shepherd. We are to follow God's shepherd. This is, this is the second thing that we see from this text about what life is meant to be like because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We are to remember God's peace, but we are also to follow God's shepherd. Who is this God of peace? He is the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, first of all, when we think about just what We've been told here the the simple fact that God brought Jesus back from the dead, it should cause us to be amazed by God's power. It should cause us to be amazed by God's power. Even today with all of the advanced medical care that we have, all of the medicines that we have, which by ancient standards would look like magic to people back then, we still have nothing that comes close to stopping death. Yeah, we can restart a heart we can repair some, some small damage in a person's brain. But if they're dead, if they're really dead, it's done. It's over. There's, there's no going back. And that's, that's how Jesus found himself in that tomb after the cross. He was dead. He was laid in the ground for days. Now, even here, though, some doubt this. Because they doubt that a man could come back to life, they say, well, maybe, maybe he wasn't ever really dead. It's hard for them to, to get past the fact that there were so many hundreds of witnesses to Jesus being supposedly alive after he was crucified. Instead of just saying, well, we have to throw all that reliable evidence out. They say, no, let's go back and say, maybe he wasn't really dead. And therefore, because he didn't die, he never really came back to life. And so he could be seen after he was buried. The problem is that just doesn't, that doesn't gel with reality. He is, he is crucified by the Romans. They were experts in death. They're going to know whether or not the man hanging on the cross has just passed out or whether he's passed away. And there Jesus laid in another man's tomb, as we heard earlier, for days. No oxygen moving through his body. Cells already beginning to decompose and break down. Gases being released as tissue turns back into its most basic elements. There is no power on earth that can do anything about that. 
that God is not a power on earth. He is a heavenly power. He is a divine power. And he can change. He did change what happened. God reversed death. God raised Jesus back from the dead. And it should, it should cause us to just stop. Just pause and meditate on that power. Sometimes we, we worry and we fret and we forget just how powerful God is. He is far more powerful than we can imagine. And that should encourage us as his people. Because that all-powerful God is with us and he is for us. And so this brings us to the next thing. As we think about the resurrected Christ, we not only see God's power, we also see his compassionate presence. We see God's presence. God raised up Jesus and established him as the shepherd of the sheep. Now, as we hear that phrase, shepherd of the sheep, if we're familiar with the Bible, like bells should be ringing off. That sounds familiar. Particularly in the Old Testament, not only do you have Psalm 23, all about God as the good shepherd, but you also see him promising through his prophets that he will come and he will shepherd his people directly. Why? Because they had leaders, they had shepherds, and they had failed miserably at being good shepherds of taking care of the sheep. Now, now, why does he call his people sheep and why does he call himself a shepherd? Why does he use that kind of language? I mean, most of us have never been around sheep, have never seen a real shepherd. It's, you know, something we read in a book or something we see on television. But if you go and you read anything or do any kind of study about sheep, what you realize is that actually, apart from shepherds, they're pretty much helpless. They can't defend themselves. Uh, they, 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 you know, they, they barely know how to run away. And if you've ever seen a sheep, they're not exactly built for speed. Okay. You know, you know, I mean, they're just barely making it away from a wolf or, or something else that would threaten them. And they can't, they can't find food. You know, if you set a dog loose in the wilderness, it's going to sniff around. It's going to hunt down. It's going to find some food. Unless the food is under the nose of the sheep, it doesn't know what to do. It's just going to sit there and bleat until it dies because it's hungry. And so it require, sheep require a shepherd, someone to protect them, to care for them, to, to find them food. And God says, God's promises to his people, I'm going to come and I'm going to shepherd you. And now what we see is he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Through Christ now, God is going to shepherd his people. You see, Jesus was more than just a man. He's more than just God's son. He is God, he is God the son fully divine in every way, and yet he is also human, fully human like us, having taken on humanity for his life and ministry on earth. So here is Jesus as our shepherd. He has all the power of God and all the experience of humanity. It makes him ideally suited to be our shepherd. He knows our weaknesses, and yet he's overcome every temptation. He understands the sinful world in which we live, and so he can wisely provide direction and guidance that allows us to navigate our way through it. God has made Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, to be the great shepherd of the sheep. But are you following that shepherd? The truth is we desperately need him as our shepherd, just as any sheep does. And yet, we are prone to wander into sin and make a wreck of our lives. We need to follow him, but too many of us who claim to be Christians, who claim to be sheep, are grateful for his saving work, but frankly despise his shepherding work. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want a shepherd. We don't want a leader. We don't want a king. We want to do what we want to do. Thanks for dying for me, but now I've got it for here. 
I'm good from now on. And we forget that his leadership, his care, his shepherding is required for our growth and health as God's people. Yet the, the, the most obvious temptation for Christians is to wander away from Christ. To go through the motions of faith, but only embrace him as our shepherd insofar as we're not inconvenienced by his leadership over our lives. So again, we have to ask, are we following our shepherd? And if so, what does that look like on a daily basis? What does that look like in our day-to-day lives and decisions that we make about how we live? Where is our shepherd? Are we seeking his leadership? Are we striving to follow him? Are our plans for life? When you woke up this morning, nah, that's true, you're here for church. Tomorrow when you wake up, Will you give any thought to the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead before you plan out your day? That's the test of whether or not he is our shepherd. Is he just the background music to the soundtrack of your life? Is he just that elevator music playing softly coming from somewhere else that is just annoying and not helpful and doesn't contribute or affect what you do in any way? makes little difference in how we think and in how we love and in how we play and how we study and how we work and how we live. Just last night, a pastor named David Platt, or on Friday night rather, reminded 60,000 people that for, for those who call themselves Christians, basic discipleship means that we daily relinquish our rights and daily rearrange our schedules For the sake of Christ and the good news of the salvation that we want. Are you doing that? Do you daily relinquish your rights? The amazing rights that you have in this country? And do you daily rearrange your schedule for the sake of the risen Christ? To say, I want to follow His leadership. I want to live a life that's about Him. That's focused on Him. That is all about the fact that He is not in the tomb. But He is at the right hand of the Father. Alive. Never to die again. Loved ones, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. If you claim the name of Christ, how well does your life bring glory to Christ? How well does it reflect that you are a sheep in desperate need of a shepherd and you are not the shepherd? Jesus is the shepherd. Hebrews goes on to give us encouragement. To give us encouragement in our need to follow him. He reminds us that we should trust God's promise. That we should trust God's promise. When we think about life under the, 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 the risen Christ. We remember God's peace. We are to follow God's shepherd. But we also can trust God's promise. Hebrews says it was by the blood of the eternal covenant. That God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The great shepherd of the sheep. Now what does that mean? What is this blood of the eternal covenant and how is it the means by which God brought back to life Jesus from the dead? Well, to be clear, the blood is Jesus' own blood. If you were to go back through the the book of Hebrews, if you were to start at chapter 1 and read all the way through up to to chapter 13, what you would see is an argument he's making that the blood of Jesus that was put on display, that, that dripped out from his body on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, was superior in every way to the animal blood that had been poured out for the sins of God's people for the previous 1,500 years. That the blood of Christ was superior, in part because it began a superior covenant. You see, God had a promise. He had a covenant. He had an agreement with His people. 
He would be their God. They would be his people. He would provide everything for them. He'd already provided salvation. And from that, he asked for obedience. And they said, yeah, we will obey. We will love. We will worship. We will serve you. But guess what they did? They went and they loved and they worshiped and they served other gods instead. Or in addition to. So, that, so, so they would go to the temple and they would offer their sacrifice and say, God, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for forgiving us. But they would say, you know what? I really need my crops to grow. So I'm going to go worship Baal. I, I, I really need divine blessing. So I'm going to give over my firstborn and throw it in the pot of a fire for this God, Molech. And God said, that's not what this is about. Those are false gods. You need to put them away. I am the only one true and living God. You're going to them looking for water in a well, but it's a broken cistern. It is sewage. It is mud water. It's not going to be the relief that you're looking for. Only I can provide it. They broke the covenant. It didn't last. And even today, even today as God's people, we, we, can, we can gather together here and say, uh, Christ is all I need. But then Monday morning, the God of mammon, of money, becomes the driving force for our life. We bow down and we worship and we give our lives over to it. And sometimes we even sacrifice our kids as if to Moloch because we have to go and we have to have jobs and we've got to be out there and we need a career and it's all about me and everything else. Or it might be that we give ourselves over to inordinate sexual desires and deviant behavior. And we say, I know God has designed us for this, but I'm going to live this way instead. Or, or on and on and on and on. We don't call them Baal and Molech and Mammon anymore. We call them lots of other things like fame, power, wealth, and sex. But guess what? They're still false gods. But what the Father says here is that that old covenant was broken. And now, now I'm going to issue a new covenant, enacted on a better blood. The animal sacrifices were offered over and over and over and over and over again. The priests would die out because they couldn't offer enough sacrifices. Another priest had to take the place. And what he says in Jesus, I've sent a, a perfect high priest who offers one sacrifice himself and it's done. No more. One is all you need. Such was the power of Christ's blood. And in doing so, he enacts now, he initiates a new eternal covenant. This is what he promised back in Jeremiah chapter 32. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. And it was Jesus shed blood on the cross that started that new covenant. It was the, it was the, the pouring out the sacrifice that initiated that said, now the covenant has begun. This is why when he's gathering together with his believers, his disciples on that Lord's Supper, it's the last Passover and and transitioning now to this new thing that we celebrate, he says what? This is the blood of the covenant poured out for you. Not just blood for saving faith, not just blood of redemption, but blood of the covenant, this new eternal covenant. Now what does all that have to, to, to mean for us and its potency? It means this, you never on your darkest day have to worry that God's going to change his mind and not forgive you. You never have to worry when perhaps you have been wandering far away from God and you think, you think will he ever accept me, accept me back? And God says, yes, because the salvation that I offer to you was enacted with an eternal promise, an eternal covenant. It will never go away. So a million, billion, trillion years from now in the future, when God has come and he's destroyed this old creation and there's a new creation, heaven and earth are together. God's never going to turn around and say, you know what? I'm tired of all you jokers hanging out with me. You're done. Get out of here. 
Not going to happen. Not going to happen. He has, he has committed. Think, of, think about the magnitude of this. God in heaven has committed himself eternally to a people, a sinful people that cannot contribute or add anything to him. Most of us have friends because we get some benefit from them. I don't know anyone who has a friend that it's all one, one direction. Even if it's just the, the camaraderie or the companionship. It, it, it's a give and take on that relationship. Love and affection, whatever it is. That's not the case with God. He doesn't need anything from us. We need him for everything. And yet he promises himself to us. In fact, he says, So sure and certain is this covenant that it is founded on the blood of my own son. What, what more could we ask for God to prove his faithfulness, his truthfulness, the fact that he will keep his promise and that we will escape judgment if we believe Christ as our Savior. Now, all of that is foundation for how we live our life. That's the basis. God's peace, God's shepherd, and God's promise are all the things that are the bedrock assurances upon which we build our lives. Now, what do we do? What do we do? This is the last thing that we're told Hebrews makes clear that we are to pursue God's purpose. We are to pursue God's purpose. At the end, at the very center of verse 21, we see the goal that God's people should be doing God's will. That's the thing he's praying for. He bases the prayer of verse 20, who God is, and he explains how God is going to accomplish this, but this is the thing he wants to see. If Christ is risen from the dead, you ought to be living for God. You ought to be seeking to do his will. That's what he says. That's what he says. As those saved by the God of peace, trusting in God's promise, he wants them to live as God's people following God's shepherd. That's how I would summarize these verses. The question is, how are we going to do that? How are we going to live as God's people? You know, back when I was in high school, whenever I would hear, uh, whether it was at a summer camp, a guest speaker, whether it was at my church, I, if I heard a, a phrase, a line, something that just really resonated with me, I would very quickly turn to the front, all those blank white pages you never know what to do with in your Bible. Uh, I would start writing the quotes down. And I would put the name uh, of, of who said it. And periodically I'd go back through and kind of be reminded of these things. And one time when I was uh, 15 and I felt God was calling me to do what I'm doing here, uh, I went and talked with my pastor at the time, Glenn Davidson, and he counseled with me. And he tried to give me hope and encouragement by saying, remember, where God guides, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. His point was, if God is guiding you into ministry, then he will provide for you on the way there. He'll provide for you when you get there. He'll provide for you on the way out of there. Okay, where God guides, God provides. And so that stuck with me. I wrote down in my Bible where God guides, God provides dash Glenn Davidson. And I remember sitting before church one day and uh, sitting with a large youth group. And one of my friends was talking and she was reading through these things in my Bible. And she said, wait a minute. Glenn, Pastor Glenn did not say where God guides, God provides. I sure he did. He said to my office, she goes, no, no, no. Somebody else came up with that. He was just quoting him. And I thought, well, okay, maybe, but I heard him say it. But, but she was so incredulous that that was too good. That, that, that was too important. That was too meaningful. Surely somebody else besides our pastor had come up with that saying. And, and, and the reality is, the reason why she thought that is because regardless of whether or not he actually came up with those, those exact words, that truth is utterly, undeniably biblical. From beginning to end, it, it's all 
here. In fact, we see it right here in our passage in Hebrews. May God equip you with everything good. Why? That you may do His will. That He will be working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Did you see what he's saying here? He's saying God has called us to follow his shepherd, to do his will, and he's going to provide everything that we need to be successful in doing that. Where God guides, God provides. So how are we to pursue God's purpose? First of all, we pursue by God's gifts. We pursue his purpose by his gifts. Imagine you were given the assignment to fix an engine block, but they showed up with a technical manual for a new Apple computer, and they said, fix the car. He said, how do I do that? I said, here's the manual. This doesn't work. I said, okay, well, here, plumber's belt. It's still not going to work. It's a car. You can't do it. And sometimes we feel like, I live in the Christian life. I don't know what to do. I can't do it. And what Hebrews says, no, no, no. God will equip you. God will provide you everything that you need in order to do His will. Everything, notice, is everything good that you need. There is no blessing, there is no gift that God wants to withhold from his people that they do not need. Maybe what we want and don't need, because we would use it irresponsibly, we wouldn't know how to be thankful for it in the right way, but everything good that we need, he will provide. So as Augustine once prayed, command what you will and give what you command. So also, God will give the grace as people need to be equipped, to be mended and put together in ways that enable them to fulfill His will, to do His purposes. And notice, and this is really important here, that when we pursue His purposes, it's according to His pleasure. It's according to God's pleasure. In other words, not ours. Not ours. Yesterday I was, or yeah, yesterday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday has been kind of a blur with all of the activities at church, so I get a little get a little off sometimes. But yesterday, I was sitting in a coffee shop actually finishing this sermon up. So if it was good, maybe you can thank, be thankful for coffee. I don't know. But anyway, I'm sitting there, and sometimes when you're in a public place, you're not intending to eavesdrop, but you can't help it because people are so loud. It's, it's like they might as well be, you know, have a megaphone directly in your ear about what they're talking about. And so this guy was kind of boisterous and stuff, and I'm listening to him talk about uh, all kinds of stupid things, but in, in, the, in the course of this conversation, he talks about visiting a medium right before he hits on a lady paramedic coming in, though he says he's married, and then uses foul language, and as the guy he's talking to gets up to leave, he says, God bless you, have a happy Easter. Now, we may not be quite as bald as that, but that's how many of us want to live. We, we want to we live according to what we think is the acceptable standard rather than what God says is the acceptable standard. We consider ourselves to be part of God's people. We consider ourselves to be okay. This guy even said, his sister said, you're going to hell for visiting a medium. And he said, well, you know, I thought Christians were supposed to be forgiving. <laughs> no, they are supposed to be forgiving, but God's not. You sin, there's a consequence. God only forgives because we trust in Jesus Christ. But if our life is so lived out of sync with faith in Christ, it probably shows we don't have faith in Christ. The confession we made was not true. So once you're saved, you don't lose your salvation, but there are many who think they are saved, and they're not. They're not because their life does not bear the expected fruit of one who is following the shepherd. 
Now, that doesn't mean that all of us are perfect or all of us are at the same level of righteousness and obedience all the time, but it, it does should stop and cause us to reflect that when we're pursuing God's purposes, what we are seeking is for God to develop in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Not, which, not what is well-pleasing in our sight, but the things that are pleasing in His sight, those things that are acceptable to Him. We might have all kinds of good ideas, sometimes based on the Bible, about what we should be doing, about what is the priority in our life. But the question is, is that really what God thinks? Is, is that really the purposes for which He has called us? There are lots of good things that we can be doing. Lots of good things that we can be doing but they could be completely out of balance of the way God has designed us and called us and equipped us for his purposes. And so we have to be praying like, like Hebrews prays, the way that the elders pray for you on a monthly basis, that God would be at work in your life equipping you to be able to know and to do God's will, that he would give you everything good, that you might live not according to that which pleases you, but that which pleases him. Why? Because we're told the end for which we do all of this. We are to pursue God's purposes for the purpose of God's glory. We pursue God's purposes for God's glory. Hebrews says, I'm praying that God will equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, People that study these things out say there's a question about when we look at the grammar, is he referring back to the original subject, God, the God of peace, to whom be glory forever and ever again, or is he referring to the immediate Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever again? And, and certainly we want to be careful and clear in our interpretation of the Bible. But the, the truth is, in practice, that makes very little difference in how we live out this verse. In Revelation 5, we're told both God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, belong glory and honor and blessing for the salvation has been given to sinners. Furthermore, Jesus says in John 13 that when He is lifted up and He is glorified, it is to the glory of the Father. So here's what I'm saying. You can't go wrong if you're trying to glorify Christ or if you're trying to glorify the Father. Both will be fine. Both will be fine. And what the Scriptures say is that from beginning to end... This is our undeniable purpose in life. The one thing that drives and motivates and causes us to do everything that we do, it should be this, the glory of God. We are not about making a name for ourselves. We're not about, as we just saw, living, living for what pleases us or anything else. It is for the glory of God that we live. That's why we were created. That's why we were built. That's why God made us in the first place. Why did he make us in his image? To reflect him, to be modeled after him, to, to follow after his example. Why? People will say, oh, you're such a good person. No, no, no. I have a good God. He's the one who's done this in me. And so the purpose for why we pursue God's purposes is that God might be glorified. That the display might be clear of his excellent character and his majestic splendor. Again, our obedience is not about thinking highly about ourselves about what we can do, what we can accomplish. We have this great aim to make much of God, to make a name for Him. How could we do anything else? When we think about the great salvation He has freely and costly given us through the death and resurrection of His own Son, Jesus Christ. Such a gracious and merciful God deserves to be glorified. So this is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And Hebrews says, this is what our life should look like if he is raised from the dead. To begin with, we remember the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Remember the salvation. And we believe. We trust in it. And from there, we follow that risen king. We follow him as the shepherd of our lives. And then we make it our great aim. We make it our great aim to remember his promise so that we can pursue his purposes. This morning, nothing could be more clear and nothing could bring us more joy in this life than to live with Christ as our shepherd. So let us pray that we would do just that. Father, we are thankful for these verses that make it so clear about your plans, your desire for our life. But Father, we know how easy it is for us to reject these things. Perhaps not obviously, openly, verbally, but Father, we, we so tend to want to live for ourselves. So we pray, even as Hebrews prayed, that you will be at work in us. That you will pour out your grace. You will be merciful to us to point out our sin. That we might repent to turn towards you in faith and live, God, for your glorious purposes. Father, we ask these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.